0: So I came home and ate nothing but, like, cabbage and salad for, Mm. like, two straight days because, my God, that food... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the yeah. food in Nashville. Yeah, we was we hit
1: everything beige <laughs> under the sun. Everything Man, beige.
0: It was. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Incredible, just like southern food. Like I kind of ate oh, you under the table oh, a little bit. You did. I totally ran out of steam. Um, you didn't.
1: Pr- you didn't practice.
0: I didn't practice. I practiced no, a couple days
1: before I left. I
0: showed up unprepared for the amount of. Fried food slash barbecue slash side dishes um, slash baked goods. That was actually what threw me is all of a sudden there's like cronuts in front of me. I don't even know what a cronut is before this trip. And suddenly I've eaten like four of them. It's awful. (laughs) Like I thought I was going to die.
1: Yeah. You were very grumbly about like, I don't know if I'm going to eat a cronut. I'm so full. And immediately got two for yourself and both were gone by the next day. That's
0: right. Yes. Um, It's important to, it's called self crit. (laughs) Laura, when you do all the same dumb shit you were going to do anyway, but also just be like a little bit mad at yourself about it. It's called morality. Look it up.
1: It's important that I reestablish my dominance as your (laughs) cheat day friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, just like eating every... So what was your favorite food that you ate in Nashville? I mean,
0: that hot chicken was pretty good, right? That Hattie Um, B's hot chicken was was incredible. But... We were in Nashville, of course, um, as anyone who follows this show by now almost certainly knows. Uh, we were there for the Digital Book World Conference because we were up for this award, um, which I guess the spoiler alert, uh, we ended up winning, uh, which is really, which is really fun. But the day itself was, was interesting because like, I feel like we, we were we two in... and a half
1: days into the conference. Oh
0: yeah. No, I was, um, I'll be honest. I had conference brain early yeah. in this conference. Yeah. Like, Within hours, I was like, "Yep, yeah, I've had enough conference. And that is not to say anything about the conference itself, which we're going to get into in a little bit here. But it was perfectly fine and all that. But like, just like I was fatigued. And so one thing that kind of happened, Laura, mm-hmm. as that day went along, as Tuesday happened, right, and Tuesday was exciting for us um, or busy for us for other reasons too, right? Because uh, Headwater launched, which is yes. Fun, right? We did that, so we were doing that. I was trying to focus on that. Suddenly, it got to be afternoon, and we're thinking about going to this dinner. And it sort of settled. You know how sometimes like truths just come upon you; they hit you. Around one o'clock that day, it occurred to me like a vision, like the parting of the clouds that we were not going to win this.
1: No, absolutely, we were not going Um, to win
0: because it's we just. It felt like we were kind of out of step with the vibe of the place. You know, it was a little more buttoned up. It was a little more higher level. Um, it People just,
1: more interested in the tech than in yeah, the words. Yeah, it, it
0: just didn't quite feel like this, our audience, you know, and it made me, which was fine, you know, but it was like, you know what, maybe I don't need to be so invested in the, this ceremony tonight. So how do we respond to that? Laura, we went to the hotel bar. Before.
1: Yeah, we sure did because we are in publishing. <laughs> um I the was event. convinced that we were not gonna win yeah. from weeks and weeks ago yeah. because I um knew we were up against Joanna Penn yeah, of the popular. Creative Penn. Yeah. And we get there and we're at these like pre conference sessions and yeah. people are just like worshiping she at the altar yeah. of Joanna Penn. And at for this good reason, conference. she
0: does good stuff. It's um and but it felt like she had you know, this was her market, right? Like, it yeah. felt like we were really kind of in her stadium, so She's won it before. Yeah. Right. So
1: I was like, oh, no, no, and no. There's no way we're winning. So, Joanna Penn is here. So
0: we chose to respond to that by sidling up at the hotel bar and consuming uh, brown drinks. Which, I had
1: beer. Eric had bourbon.
0: Which was, the, I feel like, the right choice given the circumstance. But then, so we do go into the ceremony, right? Yeah. And we've got, like... Dinner, like we're with some other people who, surprisingly, and I don't know how this could be true. Weren't super invested in hearing a sit-down award ceremony for podcasts. Somehow <laughs> that's not interesting to everybody. Um, but they were like, "Let's just hear the award and let's get out." Um, and it turned out that because we were the least important award at this, we event, went first. They, they they put us first. We're like the very opening minute of the Oscars ceremony. You know, it was amazing. Yeah, uh, it was really good. So they, so you and I are sitting there. We're kind of, I would say, toasty emotionally in a place where it's like nothing was going to hurt us. Right. You know what I mean? We'd sort of detached appropriately Bulletproof. by way, yep. by way of external substance. Um and yeah, they called they, they called out the award and and we won and
1: you bent in w- half. <laughs> like you were sitting in your chair and then all of a sudden your torso was gone. But
0: we so we get up so, suddenly, I have now been tasked, in the moment, right, you know, I'm displaying perfect situational awareness, I'm surveying <laughs> the room, I'm trying to do the right thing, and we have to go up there. We sure to do. To give a little talk, and or not a little talk, but like, you know, come up, Thank take, you. take, you know, receive placky into my life for the first time. Um, he calls it,
1: the plaque placky, folks. Um, he has since sent me pictures of it all nestled up with a stuffed animal and...
0: Um. None of that is true. Don't let her it's, tell you such filthy lies. Absolutely um, true. But we get up there and you said something about launching the agency. I I think I thanked the fans. You did thank the fans. <laughs> Which I do sincerely mean, by the way. But it's a very funny thing to like get up in front of a microphone and be like, this one's for the fans. Like It's just kind of like a stupid, <laughs> cliched thing to do. I mean, uh, I
1: definitely um, didn't thank the fans because I was pretty certain that there the were fans, no well, no <laughs> I was pretty certain that there were no fans yeah. in the audience. I didn't think
0: there were either. That's why I didn't think we were going to win. I was but... like,
1: tr- like, listen to us. We're funny. <laughs> we promise.
0: Yeah, I remember you were like, so we have this show called Print Run. like As we're like, taking it <laughs> um, I panicked. I don't know. It was, um, in all seriousness though, folks, uh, Tuesday was a pretty surreal day between the launch of the agency winning the awards. And I do just want to say to everyone who listens to this show, and I do think there's a publishing object lesson uh, here, which is that like... Stuff in this industry totally, totally, totally lives and dies based on how much people talk about it. Mm -hmm. And we are very blessed to have listeners and a community builder on the show that talks about us a lot. You know what I mean? You guys are kind of our lifeblood, and that's how we get on the radar of places like that. You know, it's how people hear of us. It's how we continue to grow. And so we are, one, I just want to say, like, we are incredibly thankful for everyone who listens at all, or who has mentioned something about the show, who's reviewed this on iTunes, who's done any of the stupid stuff that um, people are always asking you to do. Like, it does end up making a difference in moments like this, and we're incredibly appreciative. That said, it's also worth pointing out that um, if you like something, whether it's a book, whether mm-hmm. it's a what—I mean, I guess a podcast, whatever it is you're into, like, talk about it. It makes a difference. Like, sometimes it can feel like, That sort of stuff you know you're howling into a hurricane you know and sometimes you are but like you can like awards and stuff in any sort of those sorts of recognition they're not it's not like by popular vote you know what I mean like it's by getting across the radar of someone and so like the more you can help spread the word about something you care about whether it's an author or anyone else like you really are doing more than you think um and it's Like, that sort of word of mouth stuff can really, really make the difference. People trying to make stuff, it certainly has for us. um, And it can certainly do so for other things you guys care about, too. And I am just very appreciative. And on that note, we should say welcome. to this award-winning episode of print run
1: an award-winning <laughs> podcast i don't know if my, we've mentioned it but we're now an award-winning podcast
0: my name is eric kane uh with me as always is laura zatz say hello laura
1: i'm award-winning laura um, zatz wow. hello laura
0: um so <laughs> we're only going to be like this for this show i promise and we're I, we're going to cut it out now um and get back to our normal grumpy selves but Um, Today's going to be fun. We're going to talk a little bit. We did actually go to a week-long publishing conference that had some interesting things um, to talk about. There was some other stuff um that we're going to get to before any of that how about the basic rundown please yeah
1: so welcome it is september um that means that we will have four special episodes coming to you because we missed one in august because eric was in iceland so watch out for our query show and our first pages show as per usual but then we will also have two other special conference or er, special episodes um we'll have one about conferences which is great because we just went to one and we have lots of thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one is going to be about nonfiction book proposals. So head on over to Patreon um, if you'd like to listen to any of those. And then, of course, send us your questions, your suggestions, anything that you want us to critique at printrunpodcast at com.
0: So um, I think we should probably just start with the con, right? We should
1: start with the con because it's literally the only thing we're talking about today. (laughs)
0: Um well like my takeaway from this place and so digital book world I mean the emphasis was on like book tech right yep. like it's about um and so oftentimes not even about books but it was about kind of technology stuff um as it related to the publishing industry like a theme across a lot of the stuff I went to was like how do you get the most out of the material you already have such that you can you know, like if you've got a, ma- for instance, if you've bought a manuscript, how many different formats can you get it into? How many different, like ways can you maximize the thing that you have bought, right? And so, like the idea of a lot of this was um, just, like, I guess the way to put it is just like maximizing what you're getting for your dollar. If you're a publisher, you know, and it just made me think again. Like one thing that uh, you and I did earlier, this year, we went to the London Book Fair, right? Mm-hmm. And. I think that you and I, and you tell me if I'm wrong, we came out of that conference feeling, or we really kind of wandered around that conference, feeling as though we were somewhat irrelevant to a lot of what was going on. Right. Or that.
1: I mean, there's that whole agents area, well, yeah, for the, the rights was, area. We were
0: quarantined off in the with the rest of the. With you the know. rest of the
1: agents, <laughs>
0: but like the, the rest of
1: the animals.
0: Exactly. But, like, the conference itself was about various elements of the publishing world that...
1: We don't touch.
0: We don't touch that I feel like mo- that aren't really public-facing, that have really nothing to do with, like, where you and I get our bread, right? Which is, like, that author-editor relationship, mm-hmm. um, or it's the sort of thing... Basically, I guess like my point here, you know, I was once again reminded of the fact that publishing, when you say it like capital P as an industry, most of it has nothing to do with what is usually discussed about it. You know what I mean? Like we discuss book deals. We discuss, um, I don't know, like authors trying to find homes for their work. We discuss trade books mostly. And the industry lives and dies and exists almost entirely on... Other sorts of transactions and other sorts of models. Yeah. And it's just, once again, kind of interesting to kind of well, see this, that, you know? this
1: conference was all about, like, property, yeah. right? It wasn't anything having to do with craft. It wasn't anything having to do with any of that. Like, one thing that was the subject of a lot of interest was, like, voice. And, and it really threw me because voice in what we do has to do with your writing voice, mm-hmm. right? It has to do with that je ne sais quoi. Um Turns out that in this area, voice is AI. Like, it's your Alexa talking to you or your Google Home talking to you. And it's about how you can use that to really kind of leverage your your products. It's also talking about, like, smart apps. You know there what were I mean? There
0: talks about, like, publishing for Alexa that made... <laughs> Like, I'm sure they were good talks. That was the kind of stuff that, like, made me feel like the walls were closed. There was this whole
1: talk about how Stephen King's publisher made a Stephen King library app because he is such a big property and he has so many titles Mm -hmm. that they created a full app for him where you go in and you're like, I like this thing, this thing, and this thing. And then it recommends a book. Uh, like by Stephen King for you to write or for you to read, not to write. It obviously. would
0: be very funny if it was for you to write. <laughs> <but>
1: <laughs> write the one about the 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 car, the would, the car that <laughs> wants to kill people. I
0: wasn't at that talk. I'm gonna have to download the app. We're gonna have to start playing around with the Stephen King app. Yeah, I think. I'm very very excited. Um, and there was there was one talk that I went to that. It was kind of designed to make me mad, and I <laughs> um, actually we went I, with
1: the express purpose. <laughs> so I had it on my schedule, and yeah. I spent this conference being like, "Eric, go to this one, yeah. and specifically this one." It's a it was like a politics publishing one, yeah. And I was like, "Eric, you need to come to this one because we need to talk about it on the podcast."
0: Yeah, well, so <laughs> even
1: before we went,
0: and it was frustrating in the way I found to be predictable. Um, well, the way I knew going in that this was going to be something that was going to not align with what I see happening in the politics book world was that it hinged its premise on the idea that, like, um, the problem with politics books right now is, like, the state of the discourse or civility or anything. Mm-hmm. like. And as soon as you start seeing words like that, like, I just know, like, I get excited. I start getting fired up about what I'm going to see. There's going to be some really... Really good middle of the road things that are gonna make me really happy. So let me uh. let me
1: fill the, <laughs> the folks in about what this specific yeah. thing was. Okay. Yeah. Um so this was a presentation by two men who founded a company where basically it's like they're they're self publishing centrist authors, right? They're they're self publishing political books for a, you know, bicentrist authors, um, for like people in the middle of the road. Um and they were talking so it wasn't about the content so much as it was explaining um, why public, like why traditional publishing are bad for these authors, even though these people have strong platforms because a lot of them are political figures or journalists or something. Um, but the the key thing that they were talking about is their strategy was they were self publishing these authors, so they would pay for the production of the, the authors book. would pay the authors would pay for the production of the book, and then they would pay a separate licensing fee because Uh this particular company um, had an agreement with Forbes.
0: Forbes in real clear politics, yeah. Right, so
1: Forbes is, so they would put their, you know, for a certain fee, this author could put the Forbes brand on their book.
0: So it's important to understand at this juncture, like, I feel like a lot of our listeners already get the idea here, which is that, like, it's time to start thinking about, like, who is this geared toward, right? Like, what is like what's the target here and it's people who are interested in forbes and real clear politics and those i think for most people evoke a a very specific sort of political ideology um and what i found interesting about is they were talking about their um the way they were finding authors and stuff right and this is something i think is an interesting thing for all of hybrid publishing to kind of answer for a little bit but like there was you know this sort of thing requires upfront capital on the part of the author, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to be able to pay thousands of dollars in order to do this. and Who uh, knows how much that licensing fee is. Yeah, plus the licensee fee to get that on you. But, like, he's, they came at this author thing with this central premise that in the Q&A I called into question and did not necessarily receive the answer <laughs> I was hoping for. But they... Basically, they're promoting this idea, as they said, that publishing traditional publishers are only interested in political views on the extremes. They said that the problem right now with political book publishing is that you we only want... They called them bomb throwers, specifically. They mm. said... You you only want people on the far right or the far left, and no one else in the middle. All the reasonable people in the middle get don't get a book deal ever. And so if you come, if you are one of those reasonable people who somehow can't get a, a traditional publishing deal because no one wants your stuff, but also has a large enough following that you would sell a bunch of copies anyway, you can you can I'll leave it to you to figure out how those two things square. Um, but you can come to us. You can be the reasonable person you know, publishing your middle-of-the-road politics book with us. Um, and I asked, I raised my hand, because this was, at this point, this this talk had just become incredibly my shit, you know? <laughs> and so it, I, I asked them if they felt that there was something self-selecting in the way they were picking authors. I asked if maybe presenting yourself as a company that... Um, where you've got extremists on both sides and we're looking for people who are in the middle of the road who also feel as though they should have a personal brand focused politics book and also that they have the money to produce that i asked if that was a little bit self-selecting like in terms of who has you know the who would actually fit this model and lo and behold most of their authors are people like ceos it's you know former people who've held political office it's the sort of rich people you would expect to do something like this. And the reason we're bringing it up is not to, um, <clears throat> like, speak on this specific case study, as interesting as I find it to be, um, but it's because I think that there's something happening right now in the way we understand politics books and we, the way we understand, like, prestige and editorial prestige specifically as it relates to, um, I guess, books, but really all, a lot of media. It's like... Right now, there's this idea that you know the book world, you know, is is this representative, you know, of all um, political ideologies, right? Like the marketplace of ideas, how it's usually phrased, right? Like mm-hmm. people will buy and people will publish based on what's out there, and therefore that we should hopefully understand publishing the publishing landscape to be an accurate cross section of the thought in America, right? Like that's sort of what you would hope is, or what's kind of proffered as the idea. And you see a lot of publishers will use that as a defense when they um, publish someone who's maybe like a, you know, super far right and says something problematic, you know, they'll say, well, you know, the, this person has a lot of listeners or they have a lot of followers. Like it's about the, the default logic is there's an audience for this. Right. Right. And I just, I think that that's an incomplete way of understanding this equation. And it's because too often with so much of this stuff, there's non-public money, that's being transacted here. Like, right now, like in this model we're talking about, um, the key to the whole equation, the reason this is attractive to this sort of author is because the book doesn't appear to be hybrid published, right? It's, it's been got wh- the Forbes been It's been, white-labeled. It. It's been yeah. white-labeled. It's been, you know, it's got... It looks as though Forbes has published this book, even though the reason... It's got Forbes on the spine. It's not because Forbes has signed off on your editorial. But you paid it. You You paid for it. And then you you think about what happens, like, every week on the bestseller list, there's some new right-wing thing that is mostly paid for because in these contracts, you know, a lot of these politicians specifically or even, like, you know, media figures, they'll agree to buy certain thousands of copies, you know, or they'll have their foundation buy copies for their – or if it's like a business book, you know, they'll say we're going to – everyone – like well the company will buy copies for like everyone on the staff like
1: with enough money <clears throat> any right. publisher can become a vanity yeah. press
0: that's the that's where we're getting here is like and if you take that idea that actually money is influi- like author's personal access to capital is influencing what's being put out as quote unquote you know you know, here's your marketplace of ideas right it's as weighted as any other marketplace in you know in america it's dictated by those with the most money, and like I don't know, like this person wanted to put out the idea that oh, you know, the extremes are getting all the book deals. I'd love to see the major publisher publishers uh, putting out all these you know communist manifestos, manifestos <laughs> that I'm not really seeing anywhere. My favorite thing uh, about
1: this presentation is that one of one of the presenters was talking about this political candidate who received like the second most votes of any you know. Dem centrist that had ever been in, you know, in this particular state. He I think he was running for Senate.
0: Yeah.
1: And that he got, you know, over fifty thousand votes and that (laughs) that nobody would ever give him a book deal, which is just like ridiculous to me. Like, would you okay, so this is a this is a question. Uh As you, an agent that represents Uh political nonfiction, Uh would you look at a former senator like Senate candidate? And say you got 50,000 votes, you're a bad fit for this.
0: Like, the question I think is like, yeah, whether do I think those votes are all readers? You know what I mean? Or, like, do, and the answer to that (laughs) is no. But, like, I think that the myth being sold here is like, these people some somehow are being unheard as though like there isn't a new like maybe the reason these people aren't getting published and like because remember like the center of this premise hinges on them being able to tell you know a certain type of you know professional class person that your ideas are both incredibly popular and important and also no one wants to pay to publish them um Maybe one is that there is a glut of centrist books in the market right now. I feel, and this is actually where I got into it with the presenter a little bit. I I threw out David Brooks as an example. But then
1: he told you that well, David Brooks is indeed a Republican. Well, that's well, so that
0: <laughs> that's really that was actually a really interesting answer because he's right. He said, "Well, David Brooks is a conservative," and I agreed with him. But because of David Brooks, of course, is a conservative. But that's not who David Brooks publishes books for, really. I mean, these books are not like right wing. Like they are, they're presented as like middle of the road, reasonable man, enlightenment journey books. And it's, and apart from that, it does speak to what also is a key to this sort of model, which is that the center is as thinly defined as they would like to be. Like by any reasonable metric, like right now, given how far right you know the political landscape is you know drifting all the time and given the left response like there is polarization but like david brooks is in the middle of that. <laughs> like he's not he sort of represents this kind of centrist spot even if he is a conservative but the point is that they're selling you this idea of a mythical center that doesn't really exist because like anyone like i would toss out also in the um in the centrist bucket i would say a lot of cable news hosts who get And his response, predictably, I assume, would be something like, well, they're on MSNBC, they're a liberal, or they're on Fox, they're a conservative. But it's like – and the point is like they can just make – they can make it so that no one actually counts as someone in the center. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like it's – they can just kind of slim it down and then say, but you, you, good sir, you are the last reasonable man alive. Who can occupy this thin slice of the pie that also apparently has fifty thousand readers waiting to buy this book? So there's a and connection
1: for me yeah. between this this type of white labeling yeah. um, and this this dichotomy that's being held by by this particular publisher and probably many publishers like it, and that has to do with um, kind of the the cable news of of how of how publishing is going and so we we've talked a lot about on the show about how um publishing has has begun to emulate the 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 swiftness of social media and sort of that cable news kind of everything is everything's a big deal right um and the (laughs) and the thing is is like when we talk about that, it's not that other books aren't getting published. It's that these are the only ones that we're talking about. These are the only conversations that we're having. And kind of everything else, you know, the mid-list is shrunk. Not because that there aren't authors who are in the mid-list, but because we don't care or talk about them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for me, this this whole idea is just a big red flag pointing towards this – this kind of essentializing yep. of of how we talk about our books and, like, what big books are. So, mm-hmm. like, for me, um, you know, and I have absolutely nothing against self-publishing, obviously. Yeah. I think it's a great option right. for a lot of people. Right. But, like, for me, the fact that something like this exists, um, this particular type of white labeling, is really just, like, pointing towards um, a really deep problem <laughs> with um, what it is that we're like that we're publishing and the way that we're talking about our books um because there are like there is nothing out like and there's there is nothing so self-publishing works the best right self-publishing works the best when it when the author of that particular book Will do the best marketing outside of traditional channels, mm-hmm. right? Like they do the best doing, um, you know certain shows or they have a they have a business to promote or you know things like that that are kind of out of the traditional realms of like bookstores and 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 online retailers. Um, a lot of like direct sales, that sort of thing. To me, (laughs) these authors that are being convinced to go in this sort of like vanity style, like branded self-publishing, like these are not people who are ever going to go, yeah, you know what? Like I'm going to do a buy one, give one so that my book can be at like treatment centers. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's not, there's not a lot of flexibility kind of in, in their particular, Right. topics or in how they're approaching their books. Right. Um, And so what that says to me is that traditional publishing has turned these books away, or rather, they have created a situation that makes it so that these people never come to them in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that it's it's just like, I mean, it sounds so, I mean, it's cliche to the point of meaning this, but the landscape is changing. Like, <laughs> it's just things are weighted differently than we think you know what I mean like what is being passed as I guess like maybe the whole point of this is I just want to do away with this idea of like the balanced unbiased marketplace of ideas Mm -hmm. in publishing because it doesn't exist it's there's a million different things that go into all these decisions about what gets published and how and it's very rarely I guess some of it is like the merit of the argument or even the popularity of the argument. You know what I mean? Like it's if we were publishing things actually according to what people were interested in, in the political book world landscape, I think that we would be in, we would see different books on the shelves Mm -hmm. is my point. Um, But yeah, I guess that's kind of where I want to leave it is like with this idea that there's just, there's just thumbs on scales, you know, and it's, it's interesting to try to grapple with that as you work in at least specifically, you know, you you engage with it in a certain way, and I, you know, as someone who does you know politics stuff or tries to, you know, like, um, you know, it just makes for interesting listening as you hear people talk about these things. Um, so, to transition to our <laughs> next topic, <laughs> um, um, some. Social media advice got tossed around this week. Attributed Uh, to you. Attributed. I think it was attributed to... I think it was attributed to Eric. I was tagged in the tweet for something else. I think it was attributed to Eric Smith, um, who is another agent, lovely person, um, a good friend of ours, um, someone who is probably listening right now. Hello, Eric. Hey. Um, And his advice, he was giving a talk, it sounded like, um, about you know, author social media use, and one of his um, advice, I didn't hear the talk, I simply saw the snippet on social media, but he gave out the advice, don't feed the trolls, Um, which is, I I mean, it's it's common, publishing advice, right? And I guess, like, what I want to add, I wanted to add something to it, though, because I think that we do... Have to kind of contextualize that yeah. sort of advice. In
1: good faith, don't yeah. feel like don't feed the trolls is very good advice. You know, well, like what, don't sink into that negativity. That's, right?
0: that's where we were going to start, which is like the idea that in most situations, ignoring people who are saying dumb crap on the Internet, especially in response to you, especially, especially when you're trying to promote a book you've written or something like that, like it is most of the time really good advice. Mm-hmm. I guess like... What I always end up thinking about, though, when I see Don't See the Trolls or Don't uh, Feed the Trolls as like this idea of, you know, just stay above it, right? Like, stay above the... um,
1: When they go low, we go high. Exactly.
0: It's it's sort of that sort of thing. And I do think, though, that with that advice, we need to kind of add to it. And that is not to say that um, anyone who gives us advice is not also adding to it, but I think it's important to do so here, too. In
1: the context of publishing, specifically. Yes,
0: because... There's just something happening right now with, um, you know, people who are now forced, you know, like publishing now basically says, if you want to publish, you've got to be, you know, you have to have some way to engage with an audience. You have to have a platform, right? Like all these different things we hear about. And that almost always means engaging with people online, right? And that has opened itself up to things like doxing it's opened itself up to targeted harassment and abuse. And, you know, if you're, you know, usually this is stuff happening to marginalized creators. So it's, um, you know, you get a lot of misogyny, you get a lot of racism, um, transphobia, like anything. Like there is stuff that I think is happening more and more with, and this isn't new, is so what I'm saying here. There's stuff that authors now who are on the internet um, are being faced with that I feel like has now developed and metastasized, I guess is almost the word you want to use for past the level of quote unquote trolling into something much more coordinated and dangerous and I think that because of that we need like we need some more bits of wisdom beyond just don't feed the trolls, right? Because like that advice can very very quickly become stay silent or remove yourself from the platform. Which is exactly what these people want. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's you know, I and we've probably talked about this on the show before too. But like, um, a lot of these harassment campaigns, a lot of this trolling that happens on the internet, when it really starts to happen in sort of a coordinated way, in a way that you know involves genuine, genuinely abusive comments and behavior on a larger scale, the idea is to remove you from the space, right? Like, they want you, the writer, to delete your account, to quit promoting your book on the internet to quit sharing your ideas to quit um they you know they want to take away you know they want to take away your professional opportunity right they want you to be shut down and so you can see how telling someone like that hey don't don't feed the trolls just stay quiet is the sort of advice that sort of feels inadequate almost to the point of um Like, it's almost, like, counterproductive in a certain way because it's encouraging silence when silence is what the aggressors are asking for. In a
1: way, it it is, like, that silence is feeding them.
0: Exactly. Because, like, these... And, I you know, I asked this of someone once. um, We were talking about it. And they were, you know, they were giving advice on this sort of thing. And I just said, like, how is giving, you know, white supremacy... Like, in this case, it was, you know... The people we were dealing with were basically internet Nazis. You know how is giving white supremacists what they want the right strategy? You know what I mean? And with because what they want is silence. What they want is to be able to do things like dox and harass and abuse. And you know, I don't know about you, but I still all the time get emails about clients. Um, you know, I get right?
1: emails about me.
0: <laughs> you do. Sometimes I get emails about you. Do you
1: really? Oh my goodness.
0: It's... So I guess like in in closing, like my basic idea here. Is that um, don't feed the trolls is still very good advice, but we also I think as an industry need to add to that in certain situations and be able to provide institutional support, be able to actually have a mobilized plan to respond to really things that are happening that I think are worse than what we think of as trolling. You know, like we're I feel like that advice is often given in response to negative comments here and there or Mm -hmm. things like that when often the situation at hand is much more severe than that and so I think we need you know this isn't so really this is not even a critique of Don't Feed the Trolls but rather a call for we need some more plays in the playbook you know what I mean we need more ways to respond to this stuff and I'm not totally sure that publishing is there yet and I think that we should all be talking about getting there is basically my idea.
1: There's definitely um, a disconnect right now between somebody who is actually bad for the brand and is just somebody who's very visible because other people are trying to dox them. Um, And we're not super great at dealing with that yet. I hope that we will be at some point. But I would like to transition us, Eric, to our Taloon. It May Concern. Oh,
0: baby, let's hear it.
1: Taloon. It May Concern. I've been remotely interning, for free of course, with several literary agencies for two years. I have glowing references, full-time work that directly applies to agenting, and I've been applying to every literary assistant job I come across. I've had interviews and have gotten very close, but ultimately get passed up for people with more experience, even though I have two years experience in interning with agencies and three-plus full-time in editorial-slash-copy editing. I want to work in this field. I'm willing to take the low pay, probably half my current salary, and long hours, and move to NYC at a moment's notice because I love the work. What am I missing? Is there anything else I can do to finally get that first assistant job best? And then there's, there's only a real name there. Sure. So I'm not going to read it.
0: <laughs> Man, that's a brutal question. I mean, I think like this, I mean, there's a million different ways to kind of answer something like this. The first, I think like for the purposes of the show is like, this is like, this is what it's like out there. Right now, you know, like Mm -hmm. someone like this who is interning for it sounds like they're interning for free at multiple agencies, yeah. Which I don't know, I to I wish that that wasn't what you were doing, you know, not not from not from like a prospect, there's nothing wrong with it. I just wish for you to not be you know having that many having to have unpaid experience. And so, it's like it feels so. This is what if you were like my friend and we were getting coffee and we were talking about this, what I would do. Is, um, I'd find someone in the you know you're working one good thing about these various you know places you're you know in touch with is you probably know someone there you know an agent you know a um, you know someone who is in the field ask them like to look at your your application package you know maybe it's something in your the way you're writing cover letters maybe i don't know where you're getting hung up in the process if it's an interview thing if it's a you know getting the call back thing like there's a million different ways it's sort of like querying right like you sort of find where the hang-up is and then
1: diagnose what's wrong
0: yeah and so like that's kind of the first step but like beyond just giving you bland career advice like i would just say like it's it's a business not necessarily of numbers but of Um, like, finding the right fit, you know? And so, like, on the one hand, I want to tell you, like, quit most of these internships because it's unpaid work and you shouldn't have to do it and all this stuff. But, like, if you are going to do it, like, use... Like, start trying to have informational interviews is what I would say. Like, in that... And you're probably already... I'm I'm certain that I'm telling you things you already know. But just because this is, you know, a show for other people, like... What I would do is rather than focusing strictly on the, like, application process and answering these things, I would start trying to just have conversations with anybody you can. Like, get your name out there. Start saying, hey, I'm this person. I know that you don't have an opening yet. I'd love to talk to you anyway, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, that kind of stuff I think is – like that's, I guess that's what I did. You know what I mean? Like I just went and I just tried to have as many conversations as I possibly could. And obviously, you know, the elephant in the room here is that what you're describing is an impossibly unfair job market and conditions that are treating you incredibly unfairly. And but you're trying it anyway, and for that I give you a lot of um, a lot of credit. And so I'm just, I'm trying to like be as pragmatic as possible here. And so like my strategy usually is try to be Active in ways that aren't just responding to listings try to like have those conversations try to um, you know just meet people so that when the opening comes up you're already someone they're thinking about yeah. if that makes sense
1: I'm going to give completely different advice okay. than what Eric is giving. Um, so my experiences in in publishing is a little bit more non-traditional than than Eric's and I had, think nine publishing internships before or like nine. publishing jobs yep before i <laughs> um before like somebody decided to 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 like give me a real job i i can't say before somebody decided to pay me because a few of those were paid um but yes nine um and so here here is here is what i think i have and i don't know if we talked about this on the on the podcast before and i don't believe that we have but on publisher's lunch every day there is a section publisher's lunch is the the you know the lunchtime email that goes out about all of the industry deals and all of like the job changes and blah 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 um and publisher's lunch every day it's free everybody should sign up for it it's very interesting i love it Mm -hmm. eric doesn't love it as much as i do but i love publisher's lunch (sighs) um (laughs) So before um, one thing that I've one thing that I've been noticing is in the last year, I've been seeing a lot of jumps from traditional editorial at like big houses, you know, like senior editors jumping over and becoming agents. Um, and what that says to me is a couple of things. One thing is it that it says a whole lot of it says things. That we could spend a whole lot of things, and we on we and might we honestly should. that yeah. might be what we do next week. But what it says is that I don't know if any way like there is a there is a good way to break into agenting when you have people that are actually like senior editors at Penguin Random House coming over and becoming agents. And I know that this particular person who has been writing um, is looking for assistant jobs. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. um, I think assistant jobs are bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because the assistant jobs, like there are a few, there are just a few types of agencies that have assistant jobs. And those are like the really, really big, very like old traditional sort of, um, sort of agencies and what that does is it really is like cutting down I think on your 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 pool, right? So, here's here's I think the best way to do it. You've had 5 years cumulative experience. What I think that you should do is I think that you should start making friends with senior agents and owners of small Boutique literary agencies who aren't fucking in New York. You know what I mean? Like people who are kind of just like doing the job and they may or, you know, they, they might have one other agent working with them. They might have 10 um, and just kind of like see if they want to like take a chance on you and, and give you an associate job an associate agent job. Cause the thing, here's the thing about most agent positions Most agent positions are not responding to an opening in the job market or a listing. Most agency positions are created because one individual was like, hey, I like you, other individual. I'm going to train you how to do this. Because here's the thing. Like, there's not a set amount of office work or anything like that that an agency requires. If you are a new agent, you are handling all of your work on your own. It is your own thing. Like... There is not a huge difference in scale for somebody who owns an agency. And I say that, you know, now that we own an agency, right? There's not a huge amount of scale between, hey, I have an agency with maybe me and maybe one other person and adding an entirely new job.
0: Well, yeah. And like the thing that you're saying that I think crosses with what I was saying or like intersects with it is like a lot of opportunities in this field come from people already knowing who you are, right? Like what you're describing is I like yeah. someone saying, "Yes, we can find a place for you because we want to find a place for you, not because we're trying to fill a hole," right? Like right. and so it's that same sort of thing. Like you can't control when things get listed as like you don't know when jobs are going to come up and you don't know when that kind of like you're otherwise you know you're kind of stuck hitting the refresh button. But what you can do no matter what the state of play is is you can try to reach out and have conversations. And I guess my last little bit of advice on it in closing um, is like people in publishing move around a lot Mm -hmm. and they move from different departments a lot. And you often find that if you work in some other disparate part of the industry, it becomes a real asset when trying to then later get exactly where you want to be. And so what I would say is it could be worth broadening your search past just agency assistant jobs. Like if there's other – like look for other openings because I'm telling you like getting in – is much harder than moving Moving around around. once you're in so one
1: of the one of the things that i was going to say is like if you have a dream to work at one of those like large like strictly structured agencies in new york one thing that you can do is you can start at a more boutique kind of you handle everything sort of place get your feet wet learn a lot more than just like reading somebody's slush pile and then you can always transition to that type of agency i know people who do that all the time um it's just like getting those sales and getting that that track record under your belt. the also a really good thing about a smaller agency is that you can probably keep your day job. in yeah. fact, most people who work for small agencies have a day job. Um, and like truly truly like just applying for jobs is is not really the way to to go about this. Um, like in you know I sat down I applied for an internship position with Red Sofa literary and I sat down with Don. And when they hired me, they sat me down and said, you know, we're hiring you for an internship. But we like we really want you to stay around for a while. So basically they hired me with the idea that they were going to be creating a position for me. Eric, when you and I met, I told you to get in touch with Dawn just because she knows everybody in the business. And then all of a sudden, like you were an agent right next to me. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's really kind of how it works is you went in for an inter, inter, informational interview and you came out an agent.
0: Well, and so I think that the, like, my, my, like, philosophy with this sort of stuff, like, when you're really job hunting like this, and I've done it a few times in publishing, and you know, I've moved around a little bit, it's you have to kind of generate the stuff yourself. Like, if you're, if you're strictly respond, and you're probably, again, like, I'm saying all this, you're probably doing lots of this. I'm not meaning to tell you things you already know. Um, I'm simply kind of speaking because I think we probably have a lot of listeners who are interested in breaking into the field in a different way. But um, you want to generate stuff yourself, right? Like you want to – because you don't know how thing, – where things are going to lead or how things are going to and go. And nobody's right? going to
1: give it to you because there's a thousand other like lit majors right behind it's you. It's like
0: a it's – a, it's a thing where you just – start talking to people, like find ways to be in touch, you know, and it's, I know that that's tricky and sometimes it pushes on, like that's something that I don't necessarily love doing, like as someone who would like to sit in the dark all day and never talk to anyone, you know, like that sort (laughs) of networking. So I guess you don't even really think about it as networking, you know, you just think about it as like, um, trying to,
1: Spelunking for opportunities.
0: <laughs> just like talking to people about stuff you like. You know, like if you want to do something, you know, find others doing it and just be a part of those conversations in whatever degree you can. And um, I guess like to wrap this up as a way of like broadening this beyond just like giving career advice for, or jo- not even career advice, just like job hunting advice for as long as we have now. It's like, I think it is in your letter is indicative, you know, for anyone listening to this, I think you could draw a lot in terms of, like, this is what the market is like, the job market is like right now in publishing. Like, this sort of qualified person who has the experience in a field that loves to talk about how it's apprentice-based and it's experience-based, like, this is the sort of person who is still, you know, trying and casting about for opportunities. And it's like, that is a reality that you and I are not going to sugarcoat. Like, we're not going to say all your dreams are going to come true tomorrow because, I don't know. But what I can say is that the answer is to make the process something that you can control rather than waiting for things to appear because you can't manage that, you know? Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, I'll, I'll wrap it up in addition to your wrapping it up is to say like anybody listening to this who wants to be in this business, like you're young. I don't care if you're 20 sure. or if you're 50, it's very true. like this is the thing about this business is you can do it until you literally die. Like there's no, you know, retire at 65 for people in publishing because like, If you have built something enough, if you become the publisher or the owner of an agency or something like that, like you're not just gonna be like, "Well, time to you know, time to punch out my company card and like take a take leave of it," because you're because the work it doesn't look work like that, right? It doesn't
0: work like that at all. Um, Um,
1: And so you like, there is so much more time to work in this business than you think there is going to be.
0: Actually, I'm the sort of person who, if you told me that, while I was job hunting, I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> but um like it is absolutely true and I can list off colleagues of mine who got into this field, you know, much later than you would expect and have very successful careers and doing it like so don't feel that sort of time pressure yet. And that's I mean, you know, we give that advice for writers too, like, you know, We the, give
1: that advice to ourselves. It's
0: yeah, just like you've got time. Just push on it, you know, make a process out of doing things that you can control each day with it and go from there
1: all right well good luck to everybody in their job searches um (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on this award-winning podcast we will see you for a regular episode next week